Welcome to Inspiring Philosophy, the audio format of the powerful apologetic videos from Inspiring Philosophy Ministries. Please consider supporting Inspiring Philosophy on Patreon to get early access to videos, live Q&As, and to help build the largest apologetic library on the internet. Now, let's get started with the show. All right, welcome everybody. How's everyone doing today? I'm here with uh, one of my favorite scholars, Ben Stanhope. Uh, if you wanna know the background, how this has kind of gone down uh, a couple of years ago i was working on my genesis 1 to 11 series and i had like several people tell me to contact him to work with him and it was definitely worthwhile so if you remember the genesis 1 to 11 series uh genesis the video on genesis 1 to 5 he helped out with a lot reviewed scripts gave me great papers to read and then genesis 6 he was wrong so i didn't work with him on that uh, no, that's a different, different topic. So Ben, how are you doing today? I'm doing good, man. Doing good. I dig the goatee. Oh, thanks. Uh, well, I got sideburns there. It's just, you know, they're yeah. just, it's, I'm, I'm the first person in my family to have a beard since like the 1800s. So I'm rocking it. It took a while to grow though. My, my dad has a hard time growing in the facial hair, but I was, I worked hard at this. So Ben has a book that just came out finally. And I mean, finally, like I was waiting for this book for years and there it is on the screen right there uh yeah this was a lot of work went into this and like the the scholarship and the sources are phenomenal and you just go through so much so like when we were working on the genesis series i said like we should promote this book pay you back for all the help you gave me so welcome uh thanks for coming here how are you doing today i'm doing good man thanks for having me on yeah i appreciate it uh so the book is now available on amazon for anybody who wants it, definitely get it. But we're going to talk a little bit about it today. So, uh, Ben, tell us a little bit about yourself for those of you who don't know your channel, because you have a YouTube channel smaller than mine, uh, but you do a lot of the same stuff around Genesis. I do. Tell us about yourself, what you do on your channel, and then we'll start talking about the book. Uh, the channel is just an outlet for me to essentially share some of the research that I'm doing. And uh, my background is I have a BA in. Uh, from the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary from Boyce College. And I have an MA in manuscript culture and from University of Hamburg in Germany, which that degree was just uh, manuscript studies in general and archeometric techniques uh, utilizing manuscripts. And I focus on ancient Hebrew seals of the biblical period was what my master's thesis was on. Nice, nice. So. Just so you know, at the end, we'll do a little uh, super chat if anybody has any questions, but just try to keep it related to the topic and related to the book. Let's not be asking about aliens or any other weird stuff out there. Let's just try to stick to the actual topic. So uh, we can do a little bit of questions Q&A at the end for Ben and myself. Uh, but let's start by talking about the book here. So it's Misinterpreting Genesis, How the Creation Museum, that's the one in Kentucky, misunderstands the ancient Near Eastern context of the Bible. Now. The Creation Museum puts out young Earth creationism. The Earth is six thousand years old. The world was reshaped by a global flood. You've you've told me you used to be a young Earth creationist. And that you <laughs> yeah. were an Answers in Genesis fan. The people who run the Creation Museum. So, what is the story of how you left that? Uh, how you sort of turned against them, and now you clearly work for the devil. Uh, yeah, my background is I grew up in a missionary family uh, on the mission field, and. I lived in Costa Rica and Dominican Republic are two places that I grew up. And uh, yeah, so I grew up and like had tarantulas in my backyard and like 
giant African tree snails the size of your hand, and I chased geckos when I was a kid and all that. Uh, but so, yeah, I, I was raised in a young earth creationist worldview from the beginning. I remember when I was like, one of some of my earliest memories are reading like uh, young earth creationist picture books with dinosaurs in them. And I remember the images of dinosaurs breathing fire. <laughs> that, that was in, uh, I think, Dwayne Gish's uh, book. But uh, yeah, when I, when I was growing up, I kind of like didn't enjoy church that much because I, it was kind of like school to me. <laughs> you just have to like <laughs> sit still and like listen to old ladies in hats tell you moral lessons. And Young Earth Creationism highly appealed to me in terms of its marketing uh, because I like going out in nature and I liked uh, exploring and that type of a thing. And I liked uh, the fun of debate. So like, I don't know, it gave me a sense of belonging within my religion that like uh, I didn't always necessarily feel in church just because I thought that was kind of boring. <laughs> and uh Yeah, when I was growing up, I had all these doubts, uh, especially around high school. Like, I, I would go through a, a worldview crisis, it seemed, every mm -hmm. other week, where, like, even though I was young, I, I would read a lot of young Earth creationist literature, and the, the answers they would give were just so ad hoc and unsatisfying, like, relentlessly. I remember, uh, I remember wondering, for example, the question of, if God created animals so that... Uh, there was no death before the fall. Like, wouldn't that create an overpopulation problem pretty quick? Like, exponential replication. <laughs> and I would go read, like, you know, Young Earth, and I would read, like, uh, Answers in Genesis's articles, and Bodhi Hodge be like, yeah, God probably would have sterilized everyone once the Earth was full, which, of course, yeah, you never it, find that anywhere in the Bible. <laughs> yeah, it gets incredibly ad hoc after a while. Where they're just sort of or like... Questions like, why do T-Rexes have the teeth that they do? And they'd be like, oh, maybe they ate melons with them. Or like, what did scorpions look like before the fall? Which is <laughs> which is ridiculous, because at the Creation Museum, they actually have watermelons in the teeth of the T-Rex, like, statues, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. That's at, a, that's at another Creation Museum somewhere in Texas. Oh, okay. That image. But okay. They, they use it in their book, in, in, in the New Answers in the new answers book from Answers of Genesis. They have a like, picture of a T-Rex eating a watermelon. Well, it's it's wrong on so many levels, but also the fact that that they're they're putting in a cultivated melon. That's not wild melons. Like that's something we got. We we artificially <laughs> selected melons to look like they what they do, which is pretty funny. Uh, so, like you yeah, can see so you can see images of melons like in paintings in ancient Egypt, and they're like super super tiny because we hadn't selected them to be large yet. Yeah, so just, it's like wrong on so many. They can't even get the melon right. So, like, so they would have ad hoc explanations for that. Like, I remember one of the explanations for like, why are all these attack defense structures on animals? Like, what did they look like before the fall? They would have articles speculating that maybe God put the latent genetic material within these animals so that after the fall happened, they went through this sort of rapid divine evolution where all the animals changed to look like predators finally but like now of course, i heard that genesis 3 I, never says anything like that like there's nothing about a the animal world changing in genesis 3 when it talks about the curse my favorite thing is ken hoven what he does is he says like he has this whole like firmament theory that the earth was surrounded by like some sort of ice shield and then he he makes oh, an argument that maybe that snakes when you put them in a hyperbaric chamber the oh, venom gosh. just goes away and it's like that how how would that how, how would more oxygen take away the it doesn't even make sense 
Yeah, that's a good so, question. Were snakes in Eden venomous? Like, yeah. <laughs> did they develop that after the fall? Because that sounds an awful lot like evolution, basically. Right. They did, so but... how did you leave Young Earth creationism? What got you out of that? I guess, yeah, I was kind of building up to that. But what got me out of it was... Uh, I remember I was into like ghosts and supernatural stuff and, and weird stuff in the Bible when I was in high school. This was in 2008. So I went online and I did some research on like ghosts in the Bible because my youth pastor had been talking about it. And I thought his answers were kind of like shallow. <laughs> and I came across a blog by this guy named Michael Heiser. This was like 2008, like his first posts were on ghosts in the Bible. And I started like looking at this guy's content because it was, uh, he would do things that I had never seen in church. Like he would contextualize some of the spirits using uh, cognate words within Akkadian and Ugaritic. And it never occurred to me like, oh, you could use the surrounding cultures of ancient Israel in order to contextualize the Bible. So I got into Michael Heiser and once he showed, he did lectures on ancient Near Eastern cosmology and very, very slowly, like it took me forever and it was extremely painful, but I eventually conceded in my mind, I couldn't deny it anymore that like, this whole concordus idea that the Bible teaches like scientific facts that are like super advanced is just not correct. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's, that's really good for me. It was back in the ancient time I was debating on MySpace, uh, <laughs> and I just got creamed in debates. I mean, like they would bring up stuff and I was like, I, did I too. would immediately, I would immediately go to Ken Hovind's website and I'd be like, <laughs> what's the answer to this? And of course he didn't have it. Like, or he would have some weird article in like embryology and just, completely misunderstood it all. And so, yeah, it took a while for me, but eventually you just had to realize that stuff just doesn't work when you put it out there. And then I think the final nail in the coffin was, I was like my freshman year of like undergraduate and I was reading early church fathers uh, for like an English class even. And like, I was reading extra cause I was really interested in reading um, St. Augustine at the time. And I was surprised that they were, they weren't taking the six day literal had to be 24 hour day thing. And so I was, well, wait a minute. That was long before evolution. So interesting there. So moving on, let, let's talk a little bit about what's in the book. You got really great chapters on the legendary behemoth and the Leviathan, which young earth creationists bring up all the time. <laughs> Two yeah. beasts of the Bible. I, I remember I was teaching at a church here on apologetics one time and some guy in the audience said, I once wrote an article on how the behemoth has to be a dinosaur. There's no, no other way to interpret this. It has to be. So I said, oh, okay, so where did you go to school? Did you study like ancient Near Eastern context, theology? He's like, no, no, I just, I know I could read it. I read the scholarships on it. I know what it says. And I was like, all right, well, anyway, let's move on. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so talk about what the behemoth is. Is there any way we can interpret the behemoth other than it being a giant cephalopod? Well, I'll start with, uh, I'll start with Leviathan just because go for it. In in Job, this is part of God's second discourse to Job, and it's circumscribed by Leviathan and Behemoth, and they're treated as like two dyadic creatures, almost kind of like twins. And they've always been associated in uh, ancient thought and in uh, Christian tradition. But the reason why I start with Leviathan and why I bring, I, he's the first chapter of the book is because you have to understand Leviathan in order to understand uh, ancient Israelite cosmology and ancient Israelite theology. <clears throat> so the Creation Museum literally teaches, like the, one of the first things that you see when you walk in is a sign that shows a picture of a Mosasaur. And they teach that Leviathan was something like a Mosasaur or a Plesiosaur. And 
those of you that have read Job chapter 41, which describes him, know that it says over and over and over that this creature breathes fire. <laughs> so young earth creationists literally believe that some marine reptiles and dinosaurs probably breathed fire literally. Um, but I'll go over this somewhat quickly. I've just written a blog post all about these topics on my website, bstanhope.com. But some reasons that we know that Leviathan is not a dinosaur or an aquatic marine reptile. Job 41.25 says the Elim fear him, which in Hebrew you can translate as gods. Gods fear him, which is a weird thing to say about a literal like animal. Um, he's also described as fire breathing. Uh, he's an aquatic dragon. One passage that younger creationists are almost never aware of is Psalm 74 verse 14 talks about, it says that Leviathan, it says in Hebrew, you crush the heads, plural of Leviathan, singular. Leviathan in Hebrew. <laughs> and uh, so here we have a passage where Leviathan has multiple heads. Um, mm. And Psalm 74 in particular, it's the context of that passage is Babylonian. The Jews are being hauled off to Babylon. Uh, the ca their capital had just been conquered. And this song is a lament about Yahweh's temple being destroyed. Which is pretty interesting because the Babylonians, their creation myth, it's a text called Enuma Elish, which we've discovered in the archaeology. It has a legend about God or about um, their god Marduk defeats a chaos dragon named Tiamat. And Tiamat is an aquatic dragon, somewhat like Leviathan. Mm -hmm. And what that psalm does is it has elements of God creating the world in it. It takes the Babylonian creation myth and it inserts Yahweh and it says, God, you're the one that crushed the heads of Leviathan uh, at the creation of the world. So if you were to take that literally, uh, it would create a contradiction with a contradiction with Genesis one, because Genesis one never talks about God slaying a dragon, like this cosmic chaos dragon to create the world. Um, mm -hmm. We also have Isaiah 27 one, which is an eschatological text where it says that Isaiah says, God will destroy the dragon in the last day he'll destroy leviathan so to sum all that up we have a multi-headed fire-breathing aquatic cosmogonic yet eschatological dragon he's feared by the gods and god fights him to establish his kingship over creation uh, and the bible itself blatantly parallels him with another semitic chaos dragon uh, who's who's essentially a god in the create in their creation text and leviathan also appears at ugarit uh <laughs> mm-hmm that's true. Yeah. There's a creature called Litanu or Lotan. It's spelled with the same consonants. It, it contains the same consonants in that text as it does in uh, the Hebrew text. And I'll read to you a passage. This is from the Ugaritic alphabetic text. It's from the Baal cycle. Uh, it's from uh, yeah the first book of the Al Ugaritic alphabetic text, uh, section 5. Quote, you smote Latanu, the fleeing serpent, annihilated the twisting serpent, the dominant one who has seven heads. So here he has multiple heads. He's called the fleeing serpent. He's called the twisting serpent in Ugaritic. Here's Isaiah, here's Isaiah 27 1. Mm. In that day, Yahweh will punish with his greatly fierce and mighty sword Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he'll slay the dragon that is in the sea. Yeah, so. In Psalm 74, it's undoubted, like, 
Leviathan undoubtedly has seven heads because he does in the Ugaritic text. That's what the text is referring to. So once you've established that Leviathan's clearly, he's not a little animal. There are no plesiosaurs in the fossil record with seven heads that breathe <laughs> fire. He's clearly a Semitic chaos god. Uh, contextually, that implies that Behemoth must be as well. Right. And like the way I, I try to describe it, you may not agree with his analogy, but it's like if I were to write a poem about Mother Nature, I'm not saying there's really a god up there called Mother Nature. I'm just personifying nature. You could personify chaos in a Leviathan or like a behemoth. Like, uh, so that's kind of what it is. They're personifying nature or they're talking about like some sort of like perhaps a spiritual uh, representation right. of chaos and whatnot. It's not an actual animal. And, and like uh, I said, if, if you were to take it literally in many cases, like uh, Psalm 74, God creating the world through slaying this dragon, like Genesis 1 just does not contain that idea. Exactly. Yeah, uh, it, would, it would create some contradictions there. And so, you know, I but, remember one thing, one thing you said on, on Facebook that I thought was really good is like, young earth creationists always want us to take the plain reading of Genesis. Just take the plain reading of Genesis. It's okay. But when it comes to understanding the Mosaic Law or the Conquest or some of these other harsh passages, well, then, you know, we got to study the cultural context. We got to really look at the Hebrew, get the word. Well, <laughs> but the plain reading is definitely for Genesis. Don't, don't worry about any cultural context, uh, Hebrew linguistics, any of that right there. No, no, no. Look, I agree. Yeah. We should study They'll the become advanced context. scholars once an atheist is challenging, like, God's authority by citing text on uh, slavery in the Bible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But then yeah, it, when, when it comes to Genesis 1, like, no, you just got to take the plain, simple, like, even a child can understand it. So let's let's move on to the behemoth, because doesn't right. it say it has a tail like a cedar? And um, let's try to use some uh, let's try to use some family friendly language here, Ben. Well, I jotted down, I jotted down some notes. Here's seven reasons why Behemoth is not a dinosaur. One, Behemoth is probably mythological because Leviathan is, mm. and the two contextualize each other. Two, uh, Behemoth is probably mythological because unanimously in ancient Jewish literature and uh, tradition, he's considered a mythological creature. Like he's particularly associated with the eschaton in the same way that Leviathan is which is a pretty reasonable inference for ancient Jews to draw because Leviathan's associated with the eschaton and texts like Isaiah. Uh, three, sauropods, like uh, brachiosauruses, for example, they eat from trees. Like their whole biomorphology is based around eating from trees. It's and kind of like Job, they have a long neck, you know, the long In Job neck. 40, one of the first lines is he eats grass as an ox or like an ox, which is just <laughs> like a wet sandwich of a line, like, if this creature is, is a sauropod. Uh, reason number four. <laughs> Biblical Hebrew it has words for scales. It has words for dragons. It has words for reptiles. And nothing like that is implied or used in Job 40. In fact, the word that Behemoth, is, his name is formed off of, is the Hebrew word behema, which almost always or always just refers to like a mammalian creature, usually like an ox. Um fifth reason is that in Job 40, and there's another text in the Psalms that mentions that may mention Behemoth, but he's paralleled in certain ways uh, within the poetry with other like animals of the mountains or beasts of the fields. Uh, for example, in Job 40 verse 22, there's a line that says the beasts of the fields jubilate. 
and there's there's a Semitic double entendre within that verse. I won't go into the details, but it can essentially like read also that these animals are serving behemoth, which tends to imply again that he's being paralleled with them, which implies that he's a mammal. He's not a freaking reptile. Uh, mm-hmm. And then reason six and seven, which is the the one that you brought up. Okay, so in Job chapter 40, verse 17, it talks about, um, let me see if I can read the text real quick. He makes his tail stiff like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are knit together. That word thighs in Hebrew, um, it's actually pulled from Aramaic. So there's a very common word for thighs in Hebrew, and the author decides for whatever reason not to use it. Instead, he pulls this word from Aramaic that nowhere else appears in the Bible. The word is pachad. And unanimously, in ancient Syriac and uh, Aramaic literature, the witnesses that we have to this term, and in Jewish interpretation, it means the testicles. Um, the literal meaning is thighs, but it's it implies the testicles. It's a euphemism for the testicles. For example, uh, Targum, Onkelos, and Pseudo-Jonathan translate Leviticus 21.20, which is a verse about like men with crushed testicles can't enter into the temple. They use the word pachad to translate testicles there. And you also have like uh, the Latin Vulgate, it translates it as testiculorum. The King James translated it as stones. Mm-hmm. So there's a problem right there because sauropod dinosaurs, no dinosaur that I'm aware of had external testicles. Uh, <laughs> and then you have the problem that uh, this this chapter is like in couplet parallelism. So the way that it works is that you have like one line and then the next line will repeat the same idea in Hebrew, just in different words. And the line, he makes his tail stiff like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are knit together. If that word thighs actually means testicles, then that word tail is being paralleled with the testicles, which implies that it's a euphemism for the penis for his male anatomy. Which I yeah. think is probably it's probably associated with the fact that he's in some way a Semitic chaos god, and that it's describing reproductive virility. There's a lot of sexual language that you don't really pick up in English, but it's implied in Hebrew in this passage. So I think that's what's going on in the verse. And there's a tremendous amount of Job scholars uh, and specialists that translate this passage that agree with me on that. Well, so you're just not taking the plain reading. You're trying to add <laughs> all this Hebrew context that's just not there in my King James Bible. Uh, so. What's up with that? <laughs> the King James did get the part about the testicles, right? Well, there, there you go. Got to so, hand it to the King James on that. Yeah, I, I, I love that. That's like the only verse they really got for the behemoth is the tail. That's the they only, yeah, about, the only verse they have for it being a dinosaur is his tail is like a cedar. But they don't talk about eating the grass, all the other stuff you went over. Like eat the, a sauropod with a long neck. That's that's designed to get leaves. Like it's you don't need a long neck if you're going to be eating grass. That doesn't make any sense. So yeah, let's let's talk about some other things in the book because there's a lot in here. Uh, like you you talk also about um, Genesis one one, which we probably don't have time to go into, and how they're they're probably misunderstanding a lot of that. You talk about the ancient Hebrew cosmology. Uh, so would you mind briefly uh, talking a little bit about uh, the ancient Hebrew cosmology when it talks about separating the waters? Now, they'll use this to say, though, that's referring to them creating the sky, right? Isn't it? Isn't it the waters below and the waters above? Isn't that in Genesis 1? They're creating the sky, right? Is that all that's really going on there? 
Right. In ancient uh, Near Eastern cosmology, the belief was that there is a a heavenly ocean, that there are waters above the sky, and that the sky is a solid firmament. It's like a snow globe, but in reverse. And... Genesis one, it talks it talks about God creating the firmament and like he 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 separates the waters above from the waters below the sea and the waters the sea above the sky. And this passage, I think it's Genesis one verse seven. This passage is so explicit that you get all sorts of just insane creationist explanations for it. Uh, <laughs> the popular view right now within young earth creationism, and you have articles all over like the Answers in Genesis website and and their academic their academic journal. They believe that the waters above that the ancient Hebrews are like mentioning in their hymns refer to our ice particles at the edge of the space time universe. <laughs> wow. That is, uh, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. It, there's clear indications in Genesis 1 1 of ancient Near Eastern cosmology. The idea there was a flat disk, there's a solid dome over, and then there's waters above there. That's what the separating of the waters is. They're just talking about ancient Near Eastern cosmology. In Genesis, her answers in Genesis, the Creation Museum, wants to reinterpret a lot of this within a modern context. They want to force these modern readings onto the text to make it fit, and it just doesn't work. So building on that, like we're trying to understand it in its ancient Near Eastern context. And their, their reply is often, well, you're just trying to interpret the Bible in the context of pagan literature. And yes. that is ruining the <laughs> sacredness of it. How could you, how could you read the Bible in terms of Ugritic texts, Mesopotamian texts, Egyptian texts, that, that it wasn't written by them then, it was written by God. It, so we got to interpret it from his perspective. And that's namely how we think, right? That's how the modern people think is how God would have thought back then when he was writing it. Yeah, they have sort of a Quranic view of the Bible that it was like delivered sacred wrapped from heaven. Not even the authors understood so much of it, so much of what was going on in it. Um, but yeah, I know, I know that there are articles and blog posts on the answers in Genesis website, for example, where, uh, like Ken Ham refers to John Walton as a Protestant Pope and he he calls him (laughs) arrogant and all this because to him, that's like just, just a horrible thing that John Walton does where John Walton like dares to interpret the Bible in its ancient Near Eastern context. Uh, I want to read you a quote from Simon Turpin who's one of Answers in Genesis's executive directors. <laughs> just, to, just to illustrate what you just said, uh, quote, these scholars come to the biblical account. They read all the ostensible associated ancient Near Eastern creation parallels and then interpret the passage in light of the parallels, thereby reading the parallels into the text. <laughs> Evangelical scholars such as Dennis Lamoureux and Trimper Longman are guilty of reading Genesis in light of ancient Near Eastern texts. <laughs> guilty that's of from, it. They're guilty. That's from the that's from uh, the answers in Genesis's website. Uh, but yeah, it's first it's off. Really, they ahead, base yeah. this off of like the the doctrine of the clarity of Scripture, the perspicuity of Scripture, and that's not even accurate. If you go read it in the London Baptist Confession or in the Westminster Confession, it the doctrine of the clarity of Scripture refers to salvation. It doesn't refer to Genesis one or like. It doesn't refute the requirement to do like academic study of the Bible. Uh, But you and I both know, like whenever I hear people talk like this, they're basically saying to you that you should not trust them to interpret the Bible at all. You should just like 
not bother with them at all because you can't read an academic Bible commentary on any book of the Bible like past several pages without realizing how much the ancient Near East contextualizes the whole thing. Like, I can't believe that, like, Ken Ham or Simon Turpin can be so ridiculously illiterate in biblical studies that they could even make a claim like that. <laughs> it's it's ridiculous. It, it's, you know, I just wrote a paper on New Testament ethics for, for grad school, and I pointed out sometimes Paul references Aristotle in terms of ethics. Uh, it's in Galatians 5, Romans 2. It would be absurd for me not to understand what Aristotle is talking about in those passages Paul's referring to. Before right, and to understand who he's interacting with helps understand him so much better. Exactly, like, and you get such a richer understanding of what's going on in the ancient world. Why wouldn't we do that with the Old Testament? My own uh, MA thesis was like entirely on this topic, pretty much, because uh, it was written on seals. Uh, so most people don't know this. It would probably offend most people to realize this. But, well, for example, if you go to the uh, to the Israel Museum in Jerusalem, which I did, like, last year, just look at the artifacts. They're all covered. Most of them have, like, Egyptian iconography all over them, stuff discovered in the land of Israel. And I wrote my MA thesis on the question of why is it that guys like Hezekiah? So King Hezekiah, the biblical authors, love him to death. He was a friend of the prophet Isaiah. We discovered his personal royal seal in the archaeology, uh, multiple iterations of it, and it depicts like uh, it depicts a winged sun disk, basically the sun disk of Ray, and then it has two Egypt two Egyptian onks on the side, and this is what he like stamped all of his uh, papyrus documents for his administration. So I answer the question of like, okay, why did ancient Jews do this? <laughs> uh, and there was actually a lot of enlightening context within the Bible. I found there's all these biblical passages which take Egyptian symbols and theology and apply them to Yahweh as a way of elevating him. And you wouldn't ever know that unless you like looked at the ancient Eastern context. But if, if you, if you want to dwell on this topic with me a little bit longer, I've created, a, I've, I've got another list. I decided I went through the book like chapter by chapter and like made a short list of like, here are all the places where answers in Genesis uh, fails to understand the Bible abysmally because they refuse to read it in its ancient or Eastern context. Yeah. Let's <laughs> which go is why I subtitle, which is why I subtitle the book uh, understanding, you know, about understanding Genesis in its ancient or Eastern context. But well, we start off with Leviathan and behemoth, which I just looked at. Like if, the Baal cycle is like one of the first texts that you should ever read, like in seminary, <laughs> in in your ancient Near Eastern history class, because it's it's one of the most important like uh, texts for contextualizing the Bible. And if any of them had just read it, they would have known about all the parallels between Lotan and Leviathan. So they get they get both Leviathan and Behemoth, you know, terribly wrong because they're not familiar with that context. Another one would be Genesis one one's grammar. More precisely, Genesis one one through three. Yeah, I won't go um, into the real, syntax. Real quick on that, I mean, yeah, there's a lot of really good scholarship in the book where you cover Genesis one one, and you talk about it a lot. In fact, we um, you helped me write a blog recently where you responded to um, Creation Ministries, and they were using commentaries from like the 1940s <laughs> to understand Genesis one one, and you basically pointed out like, guys, the scholarship has come a long way over the past. 80 years now? I mean, let, let's let's update things a little bit here. So you have a lot of very updated scholarship in this. But yeah, continue on. So they they date 
not just the Earth at 6,000 years old, but the entire universe at 6,000 years old, which creates some very, very interesting... Like, they have a whole planetarium uh, thing in the Creation Museum that's based off this, which creates a lot of, like, interesting theories about, well, how does all this starlight reach the Earth? You know, if it takes so long to st- for for light to travel and, and, like, these stars are, you know, millions of light years away. But anyways... They believe Genesis 1-1 describes the absolute beginning, like the creation of the heavens and the earth being the entire cosmos. And a tremendous amount of Hebraic uh, Hebrew experts are now reject that interpretation, that translation. For example, most notably, like if you just want it like in a translation, you could use like the Jewish Publication Society Bible does not accept it anymore. And I won't go into the complexities of the syntax, but one of the ways that we kind of I would say that we know for sure that the traditional translation that they rely on for their interpretation is wrong. Is that when you read Genesis 1-1, it has very, very weird syntax. And that syntax parallels very closely with uh, ancient Mesopotamian creation texts. And ancient Mesopotamian creation texts, their syntax, like the Bible, do not imply that this is like, when their God begins the creating all the matter, all the material that he creates with is already like there. It's already exactly. present. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's more like really when good... God began to create the heavens and the earth, you know, and the earth was formed and void and then God creates light. But uh, so that there's two examples. I'll give you a couple more. I have a very short chapter on unicorns in the Bible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a pretty good chapter. <laughs> King, I enjoyed that King, one. The King James Bible uh, talks about, it translates some creature as unicorns. And um, the reason that they're wrong on that, I won't go all the way into it, but this word for that gets translated unicorns exists in Akkadian texts. There's a cognate for it. If they had looked in Akkadian literature, they would know that it just means a wild ox. Another example would be fiery flying serpents. Uh, they believe that Isaiah describes pterosaurs <laughs> that were alive in the late Iron Age. The reason why they're wrong about that is, well, hopefully my cat doesn't make too much noise. You need to feed that cat more. No, never mind. You probably feed him enough. He's just when she gets excited, she screams for no reason. She just loves the joy of vocalizing. So (laughs) trust me, she's not being abused. Fire flying serpents in the Bible. Um, The Bible Mm -hmm. talks about winged serpents, and on seal artifacts uh, from the late Iron Age. Winged serpents are one of the most common, like, depicted artistic uh, creatures, and they essentially mm-hmm. refer to the cobra, and they can also refer to divine being called divine beings called the seraphim. And long story short, the word seraph in Hebrew it means serpent. So the Bible has like serpentine divine beings in, in Isaiah chapter six. So they get that wrong. There are no pterosaurs in the Bible because mm-hmm. again, they weren't aware of like the ancient Near Eastern artistic context of Isaiah. There, there's something that would have just been solved so easily if they just would have looked a little bit at what is going on there with the Egyptian context, the ancient or Eastern context. I mean, serpents or winged serpents are a big deal in, in Egyptian culture. Yeah, like they're depicted on King Tut's armchair and <laughs> and he wore like necklaces of, of them like uh, when he was passed into the afterlife. Mm-hmm. But another example... Uh, which is something that you've talked about quite a bit, actually, on your channel. Uh, I think they get most, like, a ton of the theological goals of Genesis wrong, of Genesis 1 wrong. 
because again, they're not reading it in light of other ancient Near Eastern creation texts. They're not aware that it's like polemical. They're not aware that seven days was the standard like inauguration period for a temple in the ancient Near East. So I don't think those seven days of Genesis were chosen because there was like literal science being depicted. I think it was chosen because God's building the universe as a temple. Well, uh, and not, not only that, if you take the six days of creation, they're quite symmetrical. You pointed on your videos. I pointed on mine. Day one, light is created. Day four, the luminaries. Day two, sky, water. Day five, the animals in them. Day three, the land. Yeah. Day six, the animals on the land. It's They're trying to be symmetrical. They're not trying to be chronological. I find that hilarious that, like, <laughs> the church has been biting its, like, nails for centuries over this, like, freaking out about it. And there's, like, you know, oh, man, trees are created before the sun. That's so weird. And it's just like, no, man, like, he's just trying to be symmetrical. Right. Even <laughs> Genesis 1-1. Or I'm sorry. Even Genesis. a lot of atheists, you know, do that too. Is they say they'll mock the Bible, but then then be, just like with the young Earth creationists, they don't understand the ancient recent context. Well, I guess another thing also that that I've written down is uh, like I talk about. I have a chapter on Eden in the book, just mm -hmm. because I assume people are interested in it. And like when God says, "Let us create man in our image," for example, does that refer to the Trinity? Does it refer to angels or whatever? No, it doesn't refer to either of those. If you right. read other ancient Near Eastern creation texts, I quote probably like 12 examples in the book, but uh, that sort of divine plurality language is standard of the genre in the ancient Near East, and it, it's the gods talking amongst themselves. So they miss, like, uh, those of you that are familiar with Michael Heiser and his Unseen Realm uh, scholarship, for example, they miss the entire like divine council theology throughout the entire Bible because again, they're not reading. It's not like they're reading Genesis one in light of ancient Ugaritic literature. Um, and then uh, the last one that I've written down, just another example. There's of course we could sit here and list examples all day. There's so many, <laughs> but, but I mean, people can the always lifespans get the of the patriarchs. Whole list. Yeah. People can the always get the, the patriarchs. So on its most like, <laughs> like the simplest way to put it is like if you, if you go read ancient Babylonian texts and you look at the ways that they use numbers so Genesis is an extremely like Mesopotamian book like in terms of a lot of its context and the way that it uses numbers and that sort of a thing and it's just so blatantly obvious that like the Sumerian kings list for example like the numbers that are used are arithmetically formulaic and highly symbolic. And we see evidence of this all over the Bible. So this idea that you can, uh, you know, like Bishop Usher and just like pull out a calculator and date the age of the universe in the flood by taking these numbers as like literal and, and like to the year <laughs> is just totally absurd and like violates the ancient and recent context. And this is why, I was talking with you about this before. Uh, Answers in Genesis dates the global flood that fossilized all the dinosaurs to uh, 2350 BC, which is about the sixth dynasty of the Egyptian empire. It's This is when Sargon of Akkad uh, had raised up like, uh, this is when like uh, Akkad is coming like into its cultural height. <laughs> and they slap, they slap a global flood that destroys everything right here. <laughs> So when you go on the Creation Museum website, 
they have all these articles, just article after article, like trying to redate all of human history, like all archaeology, all fossils of like dinosaurs to the sixth dynasty of the Egyptian of, of ancient Egypt. The hoops uh, you got to jump through. I mean, it's not just it's not just geology. It's not just biology. It's also Egyptian history, uh, Mesopotamian history. There's it's so such many- an absurdly conspiratorial worldview. It is. It really is. And when you start to really get into that, it gets it goes a little crazy. So two more questions before we move on. But first, I just want to add one thing. Uh, there was everyone will interpret the Bible one way or another in terms of other uh, in terms of its ancient Near Eastern context. I remember one time a young earth creationist replied to my Genesis series and he starts quoting all these ancient cultures that dated the earth young. And then he goes on a big rant about how I'm trying to interpret the Bible in terms of ancient research context i'm like well what did you just do you just listed all these other cultures that have a early date for the age of the earth like everyone at some point is going to try to look for cultural context you can't avoid it so two more questions then we're gonna get to some super chats here because some of them have already come in but all right so the last chapter of your book it's titled how popular views of inspiration protect readers from their bible so let's talk about some major problems you have with like answers of genesis theory of inspiration like what is the big problem with how they push inspiration because a lot of what they do there's this underlying view of how inspiration works that is just sort of like presupposed in a lot of the ways they argue or put forward their articles well i would say like uh, one of my main problems is again they have this sort of quranic view like magical view of the bible that it was just handed down from heaven and and uh they de-emphasize the human element within it and one of the things i talk about in that chapter is there's a lot of like a lot of them imply or assume that uh, in order to interpret your Bible, that the way that you do it, you don't go to the library, you don't read a bunch of like scholarly commentaries. You pray to the Holy Spirit to reveal the meaning to you supernaturally, <laughs> which they base off of the uh, first Corinthians. Uh, I think it's like uh, chapter four, verse 12. And I totally like disagree. Most scholars disagree with their interpretation of Paul there, but I've been thinking about this a lot lately, and uh, I think that most young earth creationists and myself diverge on like the most fundamental question behind all of hermeneutics. And the most fundamental question behind all of hermeneutics is where does the meaning of a text reside? Does it reside like in the reader's response to it? Does it reside in like the physical text on the page or does it reside in the author's intent? And most people would agree that it doesn't reside in the reader's response to it because then anything means anything. And like the Bible can mean all sorts of contradictory things and there's no point in debating it because it's whatever you want it to mean. So I don't think the creation museum holds that view, but they do waffle between authorial intent, I think, and in locating the meaning of the text in the physical text on the page itself. So an example of this would be uh, Jason Lyle, for example, I quote in the book, who helped with their planetarium uh, display in the Creation Museum. Who I would love to debate. Just so if he's ever <laughs> listening, I would love to debate. Please reach out to me. Let's do it. <laughs> uh, yeah, so he teaches the thing that I said before about, like, the waters above an ancient Israelite cosmology are ice particles at the edge of the space-time universe. Or I think he teaches that. There's a lot of people from the Creation Museum that teach that. It's like the dominant theory in young Earth creationism right now about what the waters in heaven are and you'll get them you'll get creationists implying or saying like 
this must have been so weird for ancient people when they wrote it down. They didn't even know what they were talking about, but they wrote it down because God revealed it. So they think that the text, the meaning of the text in that case goes beyond the author's intent because the author didn't even know what they were talking about. Another example would be like Jason Lyle talks about uh, God spreads out the tent. Like God talks about he spreads out the heavens like in Isaiah and in the Psalms. And Jason Lyle thinks that this refers to Einsteinian general relativity theory and the expansion of the space-time universe, which is pretty funny because the Akkadian texts also say that Marduk spread out the heavens. So I guess we should all become priests of Marduk now. <laughs> we we yeah. should all become uh, Marduk worshippers because look, it's revealed. But again, this is a place where he says this must have been really weird for the author when he wrote it down. He didn't maybe understand what he was saying, but he wrote it down anyways. So they're placing the... I think they, they place meaning of, of a passage often in the text outside of authorial intent. And this is why when you look at like Young Earth Creationist staff pages, like who they hire, they're very, 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 very rarely people that are trained in the Bible's ancient or Eastern context. They're usually, yeah. or it's Second Temple Jewish context, they're usually scientists. So these scientists, kind of like Isaac Newton, are going into the Bible looking for the secret codes and the secret meanings that the ancient people didn't even understand and like uh, reading it through a scientific lens intentionally. <laughs> but yeah, very, very interesting. Uh, so last question, then we're gonna get to some super chats. I've been trying to save some of them. Uh, do you think we're ever going to grow out of young earth creationism? Hopefully books like this will help. Uh, I would like to see it go away. Uh, I think it might eventually, but you never know. What is your, it's opinion? certainly like eroded on YouTube. <laughs> It, yeah, it's gone down. It used to be much popular in the earlier days, and now it it's, seems like it's... YouTube is where it goes to die. But <laughs> I have a very, very, like, cynical, dark opinion about all this. Like, uh, I think Young Earth creationism, like, serves... It serves, like, a market purpose that, like... I think most people that are involved with Christianity... They're involved with it not because they're interested in like deep worldview studies. They're involved with it because selecting Christianity as their worldview is like a really quick and easy way to plug up all the haunting questions of existence so they can just get on, get on with like muddling around in life and like just living their lives, which I totally understand. Like it's totally destabilizing to like be, be asking deep questions all the time and to like try to build a worldview from the ground up. But yeah, I think, I think that, uh, or if if you look at like how we preach, for example, um, there's sort of this creepy unspoken contract between like a lot of pastors and their congregation that they'll only preach on very specific parts of the Bible. Like I've never in my life heard a sermon on like Numbers five's test for adultery with like the bitter waters, or like slave prices in the Bible, or like Joshua's wars where he's like killing Canaanites. But I think what Answers in Genesis does, what Young Earth Creationism does, is it kind of protects people from their Bible. Mm, yeah. So they don't have to ask those deep questions and they don't have to like deal with like uh, stuff that they're afraid of in the Bible. Like, uh... So I think like we're fighting human nature to like fight <laughs> Young Earth Creationism. It's going to be it's always going to be appealing to people that aren't interested. Like Christians can be some of the some of the most terrified people of reading their, their own Bible, of studying deeply into their own worldview. I definitely see the cynicism coming out in what you're saying there. 
I, I, maybe I'll give them a little bit more credit than you. I think that they are interested, but I think they are very much, they want to stay in that safe uh, understanding uh, right. of like 6,000 years, just much easier than having to deal with this millions of years, even though there's, there's very easy It answers ways. all the questions, Pat. You can live your life. You don't have to think all these deep questions like and have mm -hmm. your worldview destabilize. So I understand, like, I think that's our greatest weapon is curiosity is just like, like the way I was converted over was Michael Heiser's lectures on ancient cosmology. I was terrified of them, but at the same time, I'm like, huh, that's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, all right. I got a, I got some super chat questions for you here. Uh, some of them have already moved out of the chat. This is why I always say save them to the end. I did try to screenshot as many as I could. Uh, so flying coon says on page 165 of your book, you say, Genesis 1 contradicts evolution by siding with virtually every other creation account in the Near East. Can you say more on that? I can't remember the context of it. Uh, yeah, I think Genesis 1, like, I think the ancient people, like, if you were to ask, if you had an ancient Israelite or Judahite in front of you and you were just like, hey, how did God create man? How did God create the animals? I think that they genuinely would believe that God created them de novo. Like, just... Yeah, like, I'm okay with I don't, that I don't too, think yeah. ancient Israelites or Judahites were like... Uh, I don't think they believed in evolution. <laughs> uh, and well, I, I don't, I'm not, like, theologically offended by that. Uh, well, it's like asking them if they knew about calculus. Well, no. I mean, did they know about quantum physics? No, they would not have thought about it in those terms. Right. Uh, but I'm not, again, I'm not a not... concordist. So like Hugh Ross, for example, maybe he, maybe he thinks that if you did have an ancient Israelite, they would believe in evolution, but yeah, I don't, I don't believe that. Yeah. I feel like it's like they're doing different subjects. It's like wondering why there's no calculus in a cookbook, even though there's numbers in there. Well, there's numbers in calculus, there's numbers. Why is there no numbers in, why is there no calculus in a cookbook? Well, they're doing different subjects. They're not even talking about the same thing. And that's the main point there. Uh, next question. Can you explain how ancient cultures have a similar world flood account? Um, so this is from uh, Baptist 702. Uh, so they, they, they have some, uh, but not all of them do. And you actually have a, a chapter in your book on this where you cover like Chinese, Indian. But if you look at like the ab, like I'll, I'll add to that and you can add something. But the aboriginals, their flood accounts are entirely different. It's like some guy's hunting off the coast and then like a bunch mm -hmm. of waves come and he's got to swim to the new coast or he's got to swim to an island. There's no ark. There's no getting animals on the ark. Uh, so, and a lot of them, you know, they're not necessarily, they're written in hyperbolic language. They don't necessarily have to be uh, a worldwide flood account. But can, can you talk about that? Because you bring up some of that in your book. It's a pretty complicated question, but I have a part of my book where I deal, I look at the flood accounts of a couple of uh, world cut cultures so this is part of like young earth creationist apologetics where they think that there was a global flood that covered, you know, the entire earth. I don't actually, I don't think that happened because I don't think ancient, ancient Israelites, the biblical authors believed that there was a globe. Mm. Uh, yeah. <laughs> like they had a much smaller view of what the earth was, but one thing that I kept finding over and over in the research is that young earth creationists will claim that every culture in the world has like a, a flood legend and what I kept finding when I went to go look for these legends and I tracked down their sources is that almost always missionaries had come to that people group before the flood legend was written down. Because in the vast majority of cases, most cultures do not have writing. And so missionaries were the ones that brought the means of writing. And you have these mishmashes, for example, uh, 
I cover Hawaii, for example. This is a claim that they make like on the Ark Encounter website that the that the Hawaiians had the, a flood account that's so similar to Genesis. And what I found in the anthropological literature is we have the original Hawaiian flood account and it's not like the Bible at all. And then the one that answers in Genesis's website, the Ark Encounter website cites was clearly a uh, Catholicized retelling of the myth. It was like a merging of, uh, of Christianity and like the indigenous flood legend of Hawaii. So a tremendous amount of the flood legends can be explained like by that if you just do the research. Yeah, and even the ones that you can't, they're completely different in a lot of ways. Um, I, if, if you're interested more about the ancient Near Eastern one, I just did a video on Gilgamesh uh, where I talk about there are some similarities there, so you can check that out. There might be some similar origin there. I wouldn't have an issue with that. P people uh, also cite the, uh, the Hindu flood legend. Mm -hmm, um, I can't yeah. remember all the details or where it's located in the Mahabharata right now, but... Yeah, what I found, I, I did a bunch of research into it, and what I found is that it contains elements that side against Genesis, but show clear Mesopotamianisms. So mm -hmm. I think that that legend was transferred through uh, Mesopotamian trade. I don't yeah. think it was indigenous to India. And there's a lot of that. That's just an example of, you know, there's obviously hundreds of cultures that we could talk about like that. Right. So the Castman777 asks, how do you guys understand original sin? How do we inherit original sin in the fall if there were multiple first humans other than Adam and Eve? So I got this oh boy. One. Uh, this one's easy. Jason Lyle just did an interview on the gospel truth, and he talked about how, you know, like there's different authority figures. And like you can have like, for example, Jesus is like our authority figure in the New Testament, represents us, and all that are under him are sort of grafted into him and represented by him. Likewise, uh, Lyle doesn't make this connection, but I was listening and going, hey, interesting thing here. Uh, Adam is talked about as like the first priest. Jesus is the priest who succeeded. Adam is the priest who failed. He represented all of creation in that. And when he failed, all that were under him fell with him. Now, if he's standing before God, he, re he in Genesis, he represents all of creation. So when he failed, all those that were represented by him or all those that he represented failed as well. Same thing as in how, you know, you're in the New Testament, you're saved through Christ. You don't have to like be related to him. You don't, you don't, you're just represented. We don't have to be like a descendant of Christ is what I'm trying to say, which would be absurd because he didn't have any children, but you're represented by him. And likewise, you're represented by Adam when he sinned and fell. So anything you want to add to that, or we can move on to the next one. Right. Uh, the doctrine of original sin historically traces back to Augustine and ah, his understanding yes. of uh, Romans 5.12 and the vast majority of New Testament scholars and Roman scholars do not believe that Augustine trans that he understood that passage correctly. Um, Jews do not believe in the doctrine of original sin. Uh, most Pauline scholars do not believe in the doctrine of original sin. What, and what I mean by original sin here is this idea that the second that you're conceived, you're transferred Adam's sin guilt. Mm -hmm. So for example, Christians, like when I was in seminary, one of the like deepest, toughest questions to deal with was uh, our babies that die that are like born premature or, or aborted or whatever. Do they go to hell automatically? Because again, they didn't accept the gospel and they were conceived in sin and, and they, and they uh, have Adam's sin guilt just transferred to them upon conception. And, for Jews and I think for people who understand Romans five twelve correctly, like if you look at the Greek of it, it it doesn't actually teach that view of original sin. 
I think that you create your own sin debt. Like you're perfectly capable of doing that once you mature and become like cognitively old enough to be able to generate your own sin. One of my favorite things about Romans 12 is they never read the verse 14 because they say it's about physical death, death. There couldn't have, there couldn't have been death before the fall, but if they just read to verse 14, it says death reigned from Adam to Moses. What did people stop dying when Moses came? No, it's talking about spiritual death. I hear it quoted all the time to be like applied to the animal kingdom too. Like there was no death. Like it's clearly specifically referring to human beings in that passage. It doesn't apply to, to animals. Correct. So here's another question. You know, this one will be a little bit later. Uh, so Ben, love your work. Bought your book a day ago. Enjoyed every page. I was wondering what future YouTube videos do you plan on making? Yeah, uh, right now uh, I'm working on recording an audiobook version, um, which I don't know if I'll put that for free on YouTube or not. But yeah, I'm like four chapters into recording that. And that's why I haven't been doing much YouTube stuff right now. But I was planning on just doing like a bunch of uh, biblical, like smaller, like three or four minute videos on like biblical questions, like in, in like Genesis, when God talks about like, let us make man in our image, like who is the us there, stuff like that, like weird parts of the Bible, like Ezekiel one, maybe. Mm-hmm. Oh uh, yeah. Right now, right now I'm making, it's taken me forever to do this because I've been doing so many side projects like the audio book, but Right now, what I'm just working on is a very short, condensed version of my video critiquing Paul Washer's views on biblical courtship. Those are you have a great video on courtship, which I I do did thoroughly enjoy. So, next question: This is another one related to that. Uh, ben, does Ben have a Patreon? I do, but I haven't touched it or looked at it in like a year, <laughs> so I don't even know what the status of it is. But I'll probably revamp it. Uh, pretty soon. Okay. All right. Check it out. That's good. Um, okay. So, um, any more super chats, you guys can get them in. Uh, so, uh, there is another question I did want to ask you. Um, what was it? Uh, can you talk briefly about the serpent in Genesis 1? Because that is like, is it, t- you mentioned a talking snake. Uh, it, it's been a while since I've looked at all the all the research into it, so I, I'm I'm going on the basis of my memory here. But uh, yeah, so in Genesis one, uh, the word nachash in Hebrew has a whole like has a bunch of ranges of meanings within like ancient Semitic languages. And let's see, it can refer to like divination or divining. It can refer to like a literal like snake. Like the word nachash is actually automatopoeia in Hebrew. Like it's the sound that a snake makes. That's it's most likely etymological, like that, that's its uh, origin. And uh, it can also mean the word for brass, like in Aramaic and in Hebrew, is, is like nachoshet. Um, it forms, it's, forms the root of like this idea of gleaning or shining. And so in the Bible, whenever you see like a, an entity that's gleaning or shining, like it's, all, it's typically related to like a divine being. So one way that you can legitimately translate the the serpent in Genesis 1 is the shining one, which is mm. pretty interesting and kind of spooky because, because like uh, we have passages, for example, in Ezekiel that talks about this creature, which we translate as Lucifer, the shining one in Latin, uh, the light bearer or whatever. So 
Michael Heiser in particular is the scholar that's famous for this. He's not the only one that's discovered it. Uh, there's been other scholars that have come to this roughly the same conclusion independently. Um, they think that there's this triple entendre going on in Genesis 1 where this creature is, it's not, it's probably uh, the shining one in Genesis 1 is probably a serpentine divine being. So in ancient Near Eastern culture and in the Bible, there are, for example, creatures like the seraphim, which means serpent in Hebrew. Uh, they have serpentine divine beings. And the reason why divine beings are often serpents within ancient Near Eastern culture is that serpents were associated with uh, the ability to shed their skin and rejuvenation and eternal life. They're also highly associated with like concepts like wisdom uh, so I, I guess I can leave it there. If you want to expand on mm -hmm. it, uh, Mike, you probably can. Uh, you probably no, remember I, more about this than I do. Yeah, you got a great video on it, so anyone's interested on more in that. Uh, so next question. Uh, this one seems to be more for us. Uh, so I'll offer a response to this one first. How do you respond to many human atheists who dismiss the supernatural out of hand because there cannot be supernatural cause over a more plausible natural cause for phenomena? So this is more of a philosophical question. Uh, I'll allow it since we're getting to the end here. Uh, but so the thing to think about is that uh, uh, when they dismiss the supernatural at hand, you first need to understand what they even mean by supernatural because natural supernatural distinctions are not defined well. Uh, they just sort of label whatever they don't like as supernatural and they don't really ever give us any context for that. So I don't even like using the term supernatural because I'm not even sure what it means. Uh, so there's that. And again, uh, so when you blow away that distinction it just becomes what is the most plausible explanation and then you have to evaluate the evidence for each explanation i think a lot of theists would agree there's natural explanations tend to be more plausible because they happen more often but if there's a good enough evidence for a specific supernatural one uh there i go using the term because it's right in front of me but if there's more actual from like a theistic explanation you can make that inference uh so you gotta blow away the whole supernatural natural distinction because it doesn't really make any sense what does it mean to be supernatural? What does it mean to be natural? So uh, if there's anything else, when there's another question here on Second Temple Judaism. So let's take pull up that one here. Uh, what primary sources in Second Temple Judaism would be helpful to interact with uh, young earth creationists? Is Lord Ben the gateway drug to liberalism? Your response? Yes, he clearly is a gateway drug. I mean, come on. Huh. So primary will be helpful to interact with yak that that's an interesting question because i would be more interested in giving them primary sources from the ancient near east second temple judaism is of course divorced uh john walton for example argues that the pharisees were actually misunderstanding a lot of things in the mosaic law that jesus was trying to correct in his interaction with them so they may not necessarily be the the second temple period might not be the best area to for to under, to interact with young earth creationists I would refer more to maybe, as Ben mentioned, the, the, the Baal cycle, Mesopotamian texts, uh, Egyptian texts, something closer to when Genesis was written around that same general time period. Uh, so I don't know about second temple periods. That would be, that doesn't seem like it's the right context. Yeah. Uh, the way I would use like Jewish sources and the way that I do use them is kind of like using uh, church fathers. They're really useful if you're trying to show, for example, I can prove to you with second temple Jewish sources like uh, 
Genesis Rabbah, for example, is a great one, which records debates that uh, ancient Hebrew rabbis had on interpreting the Bible. And it's, uh, I think it's about third century BC or third century AD. Um, but you can use it to prove, for example, look, none of these rabbis interpreted these texts any way that like, for example, on cosmology, they all interpreted like the universe is essentially kind of Babylonian, like a mixture of Greek and Babylonian. They believe that there was a physical, like unanimously, they believe that the sky was like a physical firmament, for example. So like, that's how I use them is to show precedent. Um, or for example, I'll show like, look, <laughs> no ancient Jewish source in history, like has ever interpreted that I'm aware of has ever interpreted behemoth as something like a dinosaur. I think there's one text that might assume that he's, I can't remember where the source is that might assume that he's reptilian, but that's the closest that I've ever seen. Am I the gateway drug to liberalism? I'll let you decide. (laughs) (laughs) So, all right. What does bara mean in Genesis one and two? Uh, I remember studying this in depth, but it was so long ago dealing with when John Walton's book came out that I can't even remember what my conclusions were. I think yeah, I disagree with him slightly, but I can't even remember. Yeah, I think it's, it. you know, it's kind of, I remember Heiser says it's just kind of like a general word to mean make or create. I think, I think it can mean like making something out of nothing, but it most often, just like the word create in English most often refers to like reorganizing things. It does. Um, so I could say, like, I'm creating a safe environment for my family. I'm creating a work of art. I'm uh, creating a better mental space for myself. You can use it all sorts of ways. Bara is a lot like that. It has a lot of versatility. Remember, Jason Lyle responded to me on this, and I, he he's, like, tried to say, like, I brought up in my video, like, Bara is used in, like, second, or it's, like, in, it's in Second Samuel to refer to uh, David eating food. And Lyle was like, well, Barah's not actually in that verse. And I went and looked, and I'm like, yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. <laughs> I remember that. It definitely that. is. Because I remember I checked with you before I even did the video, and you're like, yeah, it's the exact same construction as Genesis 1. So I don't know if Lyle read the wrong verse or something, but yeah, it's definitely yeah. in there. People that say that it has to mean creating something like out of nothing, like not reorganizing material, like if you just search, like if you go to Bible.cc and like look for Barah, and look at all the passages that occurs. Like it means refashioning things all the time. Like that might actually be, be its most common usage if I'm remembering correctly. Yeah. I remember uh, Kenneth Matthew says it refers to bringing about new activity most likely. So it's about giving something new activity could be new meaning. Walton says it could refer to material manufacturing, but it, it rarely ever could mean that. And there are places it definitely cannot mean that. Like I believe in like, I think it's Isaiah or Jeremiah. It says, I create Jerusalem to be a place of joy. Uh, okay. Guess what? It doesn't mean we're creating Jerusalem out of nothing. Uh, and like, I know it was Isaiah 43 is like, did I not form Jacob? Did I not like create Israel? Okay. Well created Israel through natural processes. It wasn't something that just happened to Nova. So yeah, there's a lot of versatility to this. And a lot of young earth creationists don't focus on that. The easiest thing to do is just, Go to like, you know, you know, Strong's Concordance or just a concordance and look at how it's used, as Ben was saying, in all these places. And you'll get this wide range of meaning how it's used throughout the Old Testament. So uh, with that, I think we can conclude. Um, I don't see any more questions coming in, and that's good. We've been going for about an hour. Uh, for those that are interested, again, it's on. It's available wherever books are sold, I believe, or just Google it. You'll find it easily. Uh, yeah, it's on Amazon. Link. 
Yeah, I'll in the Amazon link below so people can get the book. But Misinterpreting Genesis, a great book. A lot of the research went into constructing a lot of the videos of my Genesis series. So a lot of great stuff in there. I highly recommend it. Uh, definitely great if you want, if you have like a family member that's a young earth creationist and you want to, you know, some firepower behind your arguments to get them to start thinking about things. That's a great book to go to. Um, I highly recommend it. Uh, ben, anything else, anything we should look forward to anything coming up other than your audio book? Uh, no, not right now. Nothing besides my new blog is it's been uh, brought back from the dead. Like I said, it's bstanhope.com. You can read some of the articles I've been posting there. I'll probably be posting more pretty shortly. Yeah. Are you working on that one we talked about? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Answers in Genesis wrote a uh, reply to um, top 10 biblical problems. For oh my gosh. And we both read it and we we're like, Oh my God, this is so bad. So Ben's working on a short little reply on that. They, uh, they tried to refute JJ Van E's entire doctoral work, which probably took him <laughs> years and like was evaluated by dozens of, uh, of Hebraists and native Israelis by like citing two Bible verses. <laughs> there's no way that they actually read it. No, there's no way. And it's a long, long work. It's great though. But yeah, uh, for those interested, next week, uh, there will be a new video on my channel, uh, The Problem of Suffering, A Christian Response. The uh, philosopher Justin Mooney helped me write that script, and so we'll be putting that out soon. Uh, so, Ben, thanks. For, I'll just give you guys a heads up on that. That'll be here on my channel in a week from today. So, Ben, thanks for coming on. Uh, we look forward to seeing more work from you especially. Uh, keep writing. We need more of that. Yeah, thanks. This has been awesome, man. appreciate the yeah. opportunity. All right. Thanks for coming, everyone. Uh, get the book and I will see you guys in a week here on my channel. Thanks, bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Inspiring Philosophy. And a special thanks to the Inspiring Philosophy supporters who made this episode possible. If you enjoyed this episode and want to help the ministry of Inspiring Philosophy continue, prayerfully consider becoming a supporter of this show by visiting patreon.com forward slash inspiring philosophy that's patreon.com forward slash inspiring philosophy and if you want to watch inspiring philosophy videos make sure to follow inspiring philosophy on youtube